my quarantine cuties. Welcome to another episode of Truths Be Told, the podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Mullen. And let this podcast be your port in the storm. Let it be the ultimate distraction from all your COVID-19 related anxieties. How you doing? You guys doing okay? Remember the last episode of this podcast? Remember how naive I was when I said, oh, this will be over soon. Use this isolation as an opportunity, not a jail cell. Get a notebook, sit in a room, evaluate your life, relax, enjoy. Well, I was fucking stupid. I can't believe this is still happening. This is still going on. I'm going stir crazy. I'm losing my fucking mind. Oh, thank God. Thank God I have this podcast to work on. Thank God for podcasts, guys. If you're new to the show, all you really need to know is that this is the storytelling comedy podcast known as Truths Be Told. Every episode, there's a different theme. And I have guests on the show that tell true stories from their life that revolve around that particular theme. Pretty simple, pretty fun. Guys, I am losing it. I really am losing it. I'm at the state where I'm doing things I'm not proud of. Like ordering Baskin Robbins ice cream. Delivery style. I have had tubs of ice cream on two separate occasions delivered to my apartment. I'm not even that far away geographically from the Baskin Robbins. I'm really not that far. But I am sad and frightened and indulgent. So I have ice cream delivered to me and I eat it very quickly and my skin breaks out and then I masturbate. Yep. Masturbating and eating ice cream. That's what my life has turned into. It's not pretty. You know, people think masturbation is self-love. It's not always self-love. Sometimes you're just trying to escape your reality. Just trying to keep my head above water, guys. Well, every episode has a different theme, like I mentioned before. This episode is no different. And the theme for this episode is so fitting. The theme is fear. Because that's what we're experiencing right now. Isn't it? And you might be thinking, Lindsay, I want a break from all the fear. This is a valid point. But may I counter that point by saying, maybe it's cathartic to discuss the fear, to look the monster in the eyes and confront the fear. We can conquer it by acknowledging it. Fear's on my mind, so uh, I got to exercise the demon and talk about it. And I had some guests on the show, some amazing guests, and I spoke to them over the phone 
as we are all self-isolating right now. Um, So I got two great interviews and a great story. And I'm about to tell you my true story. Here we go. All right. So my take on fear. I have had a close, intimate relationship with fear, anxiety, and panic for many years now. COVID-19 was not my introduction to health anxiety. The summer before last is a summer that I have titled the summer of OCD. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I also have panic disorder, which basically means I get intrusive thoughts and I also get a lot of panic attacks. And this really hits me and affects my quality of life when I let it get out of control. So if I don't take care of myself, things really fucking fall apart for me. And I've had nervous breakdowns in the past and, and it's, uh, it's difficult to say the least. Uh, I was working on a show the summer before last. I had created Tease and it, it used up every iota of energy that I had every resource within myself had been exhausted and I was exhausted and my body began to fail me a little. I started having panic attacks. I started having trouble sleeping. My appetite went away. I lost some weight and I started having intrusive thoughts that were hard for me to ignore. I would just jump down the rabbit hole, so to speak. So, um, for example, um, oh God, it sounds so ridiculous now. It sounded ridiculous then. Um, I, I was, I was afraid to eat takeout food because I thought someone might poison me. I knew that was stupid, and yet somehow the anxiety kept me from from getting takeout. I thought, what if someone poisons me? I know how crazy that sounds. Also, at one point, I got very um, hypochondriac, you know, psychosomatic symptoms constantly. I went to the emergency room twice that summer because I thought I had toxic shock syndrome from leaving a tampon in for one hour. Guys, it is so hard to get toxic shock syndrome. And I'm pretty sure no one has ever gotten it for leaving in a tampon for one hour. But that didn't stop me. I went to the emergency room and guess what? They weren't happy to see me. They weren't happy to see me at all. But by far the most embarrassing OCD moment of that summer was the time that I believed that I had contracted rabies. No joke, guys. I thought I had rabies. This is very embarrassing. This story is humiliating. This is this is gonna be this is gonna be a ride. Here we go. So um, the summer before last, my friend Veronica came over. She was just walking her roommate's dog, who uh, was an adorable wiener dog. Very friendly. The wiener dog approached me playfully and jumped up on my leg 
Normally, this wouldn't be a problem. I love dogs. But I was in a weakened mental state. The dog jumped up on my legs, and uh, it slightly grazed um, my skin. Just a little white mark. It's, It's little claws on its paws. I wanted to say talons, but it's not an eagle. It's a wiener dog. Um, And its uh, little claws left a little white mark. It didn't even break the skin. But uh, that was all it took to get my mind spinning. And I thought, what if I contracted rabies? What if the dog has rabies? The dog is not rabid, I don't think. Uh, It didn't break the skin. A dog, by the way, that has rabies only needs to uh, bite you and break the skin or scratch you and break the skin. It's all about the saliva. Anyways, rabies is a fatal illness. Actually, once you start showing the symptoms of rabies, it's too late for you. You're a goner. And that's true. So if you ever um, get bitten or scratched by something that has rabies, you need to go and get shots immediately. Because once those symptoms show, it's too late for you. You're off to hospice. It's terrifying. Anyways, I started thinking in my head. I started ruminating. I started thinking way too much. And before I knew it, I was up the entire night. I didn't sleep a wink. I was on Google. I was on WebMD. I was looking up symptoms. At one point, I was watching videos of dogs that had rabies dying in the streets. Why is that available online? But it is. It is. And I scared myself and I didn't sleep a wink. And the next morning I was outside the walk-in clinic and I was waiting for it to open. And I was all freaked out and tears in my eyes. And the receptionist, she let me in early and I went into a little room and waited for the doctor. And I was just not okay. I was a mess. I was a mess. I was at the end of my rope. And of course, that's when the universe presents you with a handsome and funny doctor. Yeah, because the universe is cruel. So a handsome, funny doctor walks in and he sits down and he casually looks at me all upbeat. And he says, so you're here because you believe you have rabies. And I was all like quivery and like, I may have rabies. He said, what happened? Were you bit by a rabid dog? And I said, well, there was a wiener dog and he was friendly, but he jumped up on me and he scratched my skin. And I know it sounds crazy, but I think maybe I should just get the shot, you know, for rabies because better safe than sorry. And um, it would just relieve my anxiety and I would feel a lot better if you could do that. Thank you so much. And he said... Was the dog foaming at the mouth? No, no, he wasn't. Um, where did he uh, scratch you? On my leg. Which leg? I don't, I don't, I don't remember, but it it was one of, one of these two legs. And he was like, ah, okay. Um, do you know if the dog has had its shots, its vaccinations? Um, I don't know, but I I could check. I believe it has, but I don't know. Listen, I just need the shot, okay? Because then we can get it over with and I'll feel a lot better. And he said, well, it's a lot of shots. It's like seven shots. 
Um, do you know when the last case of rabies was reported in Canada killing a human? Do you know when the last person died of rabies in this country? It was sometime in the 1960s. And then I looked at him and I said, actually, it was in the late 80s at Toronto Western Hospital. I was on Google all night. Don't play with me. I don't think I said don't play with me, but my eyes said don't play with me. And he said, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to give you a rabies shot. But if it makes you feel better, how about you phone up your friend and if in mm, eight to ten days that little wiener dog dies a horrible death with foam all around its mouth, then you come back in here, you tell me that, and I will give you the rabies shots myself. And all I could think was... Why does the funny, handsome doctor have to meet me now in this state? He's very charming. This is very charming. I was also in a relationship at the time. But, you know, I'm still a red-blooded human being. And I thought, wow. If only another life, another time. You could be very impressed with me. But right now I look bonkers. Anyways, he said, anything else I can do for you? And I said, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's one other thing. I, um, sometimes when I take a shit, I bleed. And yeah, but I don't really think it's a problem. And then he said, oh my God, that is really serious. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. It's really not that big of a deal. I don't even know why I'm bringing it up. It happens sometimes. I mean, it, you know what? Actually, it happens all the time. It's really not a big deal. He says, it happens all the time. I'm like, yeah, it happens all the time, and it's never gotten worse. So, I mean, it, sometimes it's worse, but really, it's just like, whatever. Now I'm like used to it. And he said, that is a very serious issue. And before I knew it, there was a nurse in the room with us, and I had to drop my pants, and he was looking at my bare ass, and he was spreading my butt cheeks apart and rooting around in there. And all I could think was, I really did want you to see my ass at some point, uh, but this was not how I pictured it. And he rooted around in there and it was very uncomfortable. And then he looked at me and he said, good news. Um, it's not internal. You have an anal fissure, which is basically a cut on your butthole. He didn't say butthole. Um, <laughs> I think he said something a lot more uh, medical than that, but butthole. Um, and uh, then he proceeded to not intentionally um, humiliate me further. And he, he, oh God, he, uh, he asked me what my diet was like. He said, do you eat a lot of fast food? I said, yes. He said, do you eat any vegetables? I said, of course not. He said, that's a problem. You should eat vegetables. And I thought, okay. He said, do you wipe too hard when you take a shit? And I said, yeah. I like, I like to wipe it like I'm cleaning a table, a hardwood table. 
He's like, please don't do that. And then also um, he said that, you know, maybe it could have been caused by spreading my butt cheeks apart too far when using the toilet, which may be the most mortifying thing anyone has ever suggested to me that I sit on the toilet the wrong way and I have literally ripped my own asshole open by by the way I sit on the toilet. And I was like, how did you know? Anyways, he may have been the one that got away, guys. And the moral of the story is when you let anxiety get out of control, it will ruin your life and um, you won't marry a doctor. And uh, if you don't eat vegetables, you'll, you'll bleed out your butt. That's the moral of the story. I'm so glad I shared that with you guys. I feel a lot closer to you all. Guys, this is a great episode. Um, my guests are fabulous. Please ex- excuse the uh, lack of audio quality. I had to make do with uh, phone interviews. But um, you won't notice the audio quality because the guests are so great. I'm just going to do the quote of the episode real quick. The quote of the episode is by former President Franklin D. Roosevelt, President of the United States, a long time ago. And he once said, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Classic quote, guys. Keep it in mind next time you want to freak out about the coronavirus or um, next time you start telling yourself that you have toxic shock syndrome or rabies. All right, let's jump into our interviews. right now with actor Daniel Stern. Hi, Daniel. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, Daniel, you have been in a million things. Like, your list of TV and film credits is very enviable, and I'm, a, I'm about to drown you in a bunch of your own credits. Is that okay? Please, uh, help me remember what the hell I've done. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Daniel Stern, you've, you're of course known as one of the home invaders in Home Alone. Uh, oh, yeah. played Marv, of course. Um, you're also in films like Diner, City Slickers. You're the narrator of The Wonder Years. Yeah. You're the voice of Dilbert on the cartoon series Dilbert. And uh, recently you've even been on Shrill as a reoccurring <laughs> character. And you have a new film, James versus His Future Self. Wow. You did, yeah. a lot of, you did a lot of shit, man. That's awesome. I know. It's amazing. I've had just... Just an incredible, incredible run. I, 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 my first movie I ever did was uh, Breaking Away, which, if if you haven't seen that one, it won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. It was a, I mean, I, I started at the top. Is the point? I, I was in nothing at all, and then I was suddenly cast in this movie with a great director, Peter Yates, and I've 
Then I worked with Woody Allen and Robert Redford and Barry Levinson, and I did Tim Burton's first movie. And I, you know, I mean, I just, I, I just keep. It, it, it's the luckiest. I'm the luckiest guy I've known. On top of that, still being married to my wife for 40 years, and my kids are all successful, and blah blah blah. So I. Uh, yeah, that's great. You're batting a thousand. That's. I great. am. I am. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I want to ask you because it just seems uh, of the time to ask. How are you? How's your coronavirus um, new quarantine life going? I'm assuming you're in quarantine like I am. Time. Yes, we're staying hunkered down. I, 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 you know, for me personally, it's not a lot different. I, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm. Besides all that, I'm a sculptor, so I do bronze uh, sculptures life-size or monumental-size sculptures for cities and commissions and things like that. So most yes, of my I days I spend in my I, art I studio anyway. So for me, I'm a hermit by nature. But um, so I'm fine. You know, my family is fine. My daughter's a doctor back east, so she's in the, oh, wow. in, the in the pits there, you know, and uh, she's uh, delivering babies for 15 hours a day every day. Just amazing oh that she's doing it, and you know they're running out of masks. So, like we're tense about that. She's got it under control, and she knows what she's doing. But as her dad, I'm kind of worried. But everybody else, everything else is just wow. waiting for it to pass. You know. Wow. Well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's all right. We're, yeah, but we're all, all fine. And again, she she knows what she's doing. These healthcare workers are just incredible, incredible people. And I'm like saying, can't they give you is a day off? Or she's like. Dad, babies—they're not—they're not, they're not going to stop coming. <laughs> and the right. moms are, you know, and she's like giving comfort to people too, and and helping out, and and so it's just a, again, just an amazing time of, of watching the scary stuff, but also the way people step up is kind of astounding to see. So, like everything yeah. else in life, it's a double-sided coin. Yeah, yeah, we get lots of extremes on both ends of the spectrum. Exactly. Um, uh, switching over to some of your career stuff, I'm I'm very excited to talk to you. Might even say nervous uh, <laughs> because, well, not to make you uncomfortable. I'm aware, married for many years, but you may have been one of my first childhood crushes. Me? Uh, yeah, because. Um, as a 90s kid, this is very weird, just buckle up, here we go, um, when I was like five or six, I saw you in things like Home Alone and City Slickers, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that one. I think I may have had a thing for men approaching middle age at that time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love it, okay. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe it's because we had those things on repeat all the time. Right. And, um... I mean, I mean, really, just a, a lot too. I mean, uh, uh, you, I had the thing for you in Home Alone and City Slickers, but then also a thing for Bruno Kirby and Billy Crystal and Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. So I don't know. Maybe it's a complex. I'm not sure. My point <laughs> is, is that, uh, I'm, the thing I'm trying to say is that you're a fixture in a lot of people's minds who yeah. are around my age. Because um, Home Alone obviously isn't a movie that that you just watch once if you're a kid. You kind of put it in the VHS machine and you play it until the tape burns. So um, I was. It was weird then because you know that that's true. I, I, 
I mean, uh, at the time, especially kids your age, uh, their parents would say, oh, yeah, he, he comes home, she comes home, and they watch it every day. Literally, they said they would watch it every day. Yeah. And, I mean, I've I've never seen a movie twice, I don't think. I mean, I, I've, I it was not in my wheelhouse, but the kids watched Home Alone in a different way than just a movie. I, I, it was all... Exactly. Like, what, what does it feel like if to be kind of an iconic fixture in a generation's childhood. What's that like? It's awesome. I mean, it, 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 it is such an incredible introduction to, to people your age uh, because they look at me and they go, holy shit, yeah, you know, excuse me, you know, oh my God, you're really here. Uh, and I watched you all the time, and I grew up on you, and my family always watched you together, and we, I, you always made me laugh, and, I, you know, uh, what a, what an incredible blessing for me. That's my introduction to everybody. They see my face, they go, oh, my God, it's you. Does so, it still happen? All the time. Wow, really? So, like, even at this point, People like even after all these years, people still come up to you for all that. the time. It's, I, I don't go outside. I mean, I, it's not like they're <laughs> standing outside my gate, but I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I have to be ready to be Daniel Stern when I go outside because I, and it's wonderful. I mean, I, I, I it's, a, I, I'm used to it now. It, it, it was a strange transition at the time because I was just like a regular actor. I mean, I still am, but you know. I'd never been in anything. I'd been in movies that were successful and and hits, but the phenomenon of the Home Alone thing really increased my visibility and all that. And it took me a while to adjust to how to how to deal with that. People does, telling me how that, much they liked me and stuff that was hard to that was hard to digest. Does that um, is there ever a little bit of like annoyance that people bring that up a lot? Home Alone. No. I mean, oh. it, it, the only time it was, it, you know, again, there was a period of adjustment where not, it was me I could handle when my kids, you know, my kids and my wife and we're all out and then we, they all, everybody had to adjust to it, right? So everybody, like, and the kids know that my kids, other kids know my kids are my kids and so then... They want to know me, so they come over. I mean, there was a whole kind of social thing that happened with that that didn't just affect me. But, no, it was never – that was the – not annoying, but just a factor to deal with Interesting. from that. But it's always been so positive. And I was embarrassed by it. I was – I kept saying, oh, no, it's not that good. I, I, I didn't know how to how to deflect it, but I've – grown to just say people want to tell me they like it and why not just accept that and so it's been my journey to because it was nothing that was on my radar to learn to be famous or to be known this way but i've, I've grown into the role <laughs> what you're kind of describing reminds me of something uh when i was in theater school i remember a director yelling at us because everyone did a great job make, doing the show, but then when they would have to do their bow at the end, they would always kind of look really uncomfortable and sheepish. And he exactly. yelled at all of us because he said, this is for the audience to feel good. It's not about you. Exactly. That's, That's the lesson I had to learn because I was the same way as a kid. You know, it's like I, 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 I hated taking the bows at the end of the play. And it was like 
a lot of actors are shy people, you know? And yeah. it was like, I, my wife finally said, they just want to tell you they like you. Just shut up and say thank you. Just say thank you. And and it was hard to do because it was like, oh, I'm not that good, or what do you do? You know, they just want to say thank you. They, they just, you know, so, yeah, it 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 is for the audience, and, and that was a lesson I had to learn. Interesting. Um, the topic for this episode is fear, so I was hoping to ask you a couple uh, fear-based questions. Um, Please. Fear so, is my favorite thing. <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> what are you afraid of? In this life, what truly scares you? Uh, pain. I think okay. physical pain. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, uh, my the fate of my family. Any any anything happening to my children or my wife or my parents or any of my loved ones that that I I spend all of my life <laughs> trying to mitigate any pain or uh, bad things coming to my kids and my wife. That is a good answer. That is a good answer. Um, That's true. uh, Okay. So also with fear (laughs) and profession, um, obviously acting can be a terrifying profession, whether it be job insecurity or even the act of being vulnerable in front of an audience. What personal fears have you had to face working as an actor? Getting on stage. Holy crap. I mean, I started in the theater. I can't remember what I was thinking. But I, I, I used to just love it, you know. And uh, but I, the last time I did a play, and it wasn't petrified. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't stop me. But like, I get scared before the play. I don't get scared before a movie. I like. I love doing movies. I'm. I'm myself completely on a movie set. But in a play, in a in front of a live audience. Uh, that's, that's very, there's a lot of fear that I'm going to mess up that I hope I remember my words. And, uh, I hated it. I, I didn't like being that scared, uh, you know, of, I mean, and, and then as soon as I'm on I don't care, but the whole day was like, and it wasn't fear. I mean, it wasn't like paralyzing fear. It's just like, all right, you got a job to do. It's just getting prepped, getting ready. But it was a nervousness of live performance is scary. Yeah. Is it that filming when you're on a set, is it kind of the idea that you feel like, you take know, two. you can always do it again. Yeah. It's called take two. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's always there, you know, it's like, ah, and it gives you a freedom too to say, okay, I'm going to try a fuck crazy this time. And then next time I'm going to try really small. And, uh, and you know, and and again, you got to kind of lock in in a play to what you're doing because the other actors are kind of counting on you to do it how you did it mostly the night before. You still want to be in the moment and real, but there's a timing to it and things like that. So experimentally, you can't experiment that much either. So you kind of want to stay in the lane, and uh, yeah. So the the freedom on a movie set. And just that camaraderie, and that you don't have to. Yeah, you if you if you mess up a line or you throw in a new line that that kind of came to you, and the director was cool with it. It's 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 cre- it's a creative process, 
and the theater thing is kind of a show process, showing right. what you've practiced in a way. Yeah. Um. So before I lose you, because I know you have a busy day, I just want to bring up your new film, James versus His Future Self, and I wanted to ask you. Can you uh, tell us a bit about the film and what drew you to the role? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, they sent me the script for James. It's, a, it's about, it's about a, a scientist who I play, but I, who invents time travel. And, and I play that scientist coming back from the future to talk to myself as a young man who's inventing time travel to say, don't do it. You're wasting your life. You've spent so much time, you spent your entire life creating time travel that you had no life. You had no wife, you have no kids, you have this invention, and and that's it, and you've wasted your life. And I come back to tell myself to not waste my life, um, which I loved. I loved that that thesis of the film, uh, Second Chance at Myself. And what would I tell myself? And my younger self is such an arrogant guy that he says, I'm not listening to you. I know what I'm doing, which is what I would have done as a young man, too, when I was very success-oriented and wanting to be successful. So I loved having, I loved the premise of having a debate with myself and trying to convince myself to listen to my older self. Now that I've got all this wisdom, let me pass it on to you. It's like trying to pass on my wisdom to my children. They go, yeah, Pop, right. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm right. like, no, I've learned, I've learned. And I just thought that was fun to play that out and very well-written you know, script to, to play out those, those conversations that I have with myself, with my children, and, and to tell that story to the audience. What uh, I am curious because you bring it up. What uh, what was your younger self like in comparison to who you are now? You know, I grew up. I was a very a free range kid. I mean, I since I was thirteen. I, I when I was thirteen, me and my buddy hitchhiked up the East Coast, and I dropped out of high school at seventeen to be an actor. And I what you know, really? Yeah. And I and I moved to New York by myself at 17 with my duffel bag, and I made my way, you know. And then I got married when I was 20, and I had kids when I was. I, I kept going. I, I I lived fast, and I was, you know, in my way, I was a confident young man, uh, even with all you know whatever fears we've talked about before. But uh, uh, you know, and just kind of fearless, and and. And and out there in public, I, I tell you that Home Alone thing did kind of change me in that I kind of became more introverted and kind of uh, separated. You know, I used to love observing people, and suddenly I became the observed one. Right. And so I think that sort of changed in my life a little bit. It wasn't something I expected to happen, and it it morphed me a little bit into into somebody different. So I guess there was that difference between my younger self. And my older self, but that's not a bad thing. It just, it was a, it's a great thing. It just is a different thing. I'm trying to very hard right now in my life to navigate the difference between listening to your gut and listening to fear. And it yeah. sounds like since you made big choices early on, you were, you were running on gut, which is great. 
Yeah, I always did, you know, and the, and the, 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 the fear isn't something you should, I mean, the fear you should pay attention to because fear is a very good warning system and fear is in your gut. I mean, those are connected, but you have to discern, then you, then your mind comes in and you have to say, okay, what's, what was the instinct here to do this action, but there's fear to it? Is the fear real? Am I really making a mistake? Or, so, I mean, you do have to think through those gut-level instincts, but your instincts are your first, are your first thing, and, 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 and that's always been my compass in a way. I mean, and again, I was an unusual person, and, and my parents really were very hands-off and like, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead, go ahead. And so I was left on my own to make up my way, which I turned out great for me. I'm, I haven't been that way with my children. I mean, I've helped sort of help them. Who do you want to be? What do you want to be? Uh, you know, how can we help you get the schooling and education that you need? So, uh, right. but, but, but it was always about trying to hear who they were and let them understand their gut instinct and take their chances and do big things on their own. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's the balance of life, you know, but, but listening to your own instincts and having your own dreams is a good thing, is a good thing. Don't be afraid of that. Great. I, that's a lovely note to leave it on. I want to thank you for being on, uh, my show, your your show, James versus his future self. That movie is going to be streaming now, and it starts actually today on Bell on Demand, Shaw, and iTunes. So look up James James versus his future self, and uh, thank you. Yeah, what so else much. are you doing? Thanks. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Really oh, fun. Yeah, Thanks, <laughs> yeah it you. was really fun. Okay, you okay. have a good day. Okay. You too. Take care. Hi, everybody. You're stuck at home. I'm stuck at home. We're all stuck at home. But that doesn't mean our love life has to suffer. I would argue that this might be one of the best times to start connecting with a complete stranger. I recommend downloading High Dating App. Yeah, it's spelled H-I-I-I. And high dating app is not like other dating apps. Other dating apps, you have to contrive a conversation with another person and it can be awkward and uh, it's just a lot of pressure. But with high dating app, there are quizzes and games that you can do with the person you're talking to. So there's kind of like a built-in icebreaker, right? Takes a lot of pressure off. It's really fun. And uh, now is just a great time to do it. You're stuck at home. You got your phone. You don't have anything else to do. And they can't tell that you're not wearing any pants. Plus, if you think about it, this is, this is kind of a gift when it comes to chatting with another person that you might want to date in the future. Because... When you go on a date in person, you get distracted by what I like to call the chemical element, the pheromones, the lusty side of yourself. But when it comes to talking on an app, you really get to see 
the person's mind and their values and you're not distracted by all that gross human stuff. You know what I mean? So go download High Dating App right now. Go do it. They actually reached out to me, High Dating App, and they asked me to make a quiz for the app. Isn't that fun? And I made a quiz called What Type of Emotional Terrorist Are You? I didn't say I was good at dating, guys. I'm not, clearly. I thought this type of quiz would be the perfect way to bring two strangers together. And you can take that quiz. Just go to hi.com slash truthbetold. So go to the app store, download the app, and just, just see what happens. Chat with some people. It's fun. It's like playing cards against humanity with another person or showing off your sense of humor and your personality while playing a board game. It's a great way to spend your quarantine time. Hi, dating app. Let love blossom while in isolation. That's not their slogan, but if they want it, first one's free. I am on the phone with Bruce Horak. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Bruce is a performer and creator and a good friend of mine. Uh, we, we did a show called Blind Date together, and we toured a whole summer together. Um, it's true. It's true. We had so much fun, and we've been buddies for a long time. And you're, you're so talented. Like, you're a multi-talented oh. human being. You, you can paint, which I can't do, and, and, and create portraits. You are an actor. Um, you're a great improviser. You're a musician. You can do so many things. I got a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah, you got. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very talented. You're also legally blind. Uh, it, it is true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but about nine percent vision is what I've got. So my right eye is uh, is artificial. I don't have any vision in my right eye, and then my left eye, I've got extreme tunnel vision. So about nine percent of the visual fields, kind of like looking down a straw. And then I also have lots of floaters and uh, and uh, flashing lights and all sorts of craziness with the with the vision that I do have. And uh, that's been my normal since I've been. Very, very young. Very, very young. And mm-hmm. um, when I met you, I knew this of you, but it, it took a while for me to warm up to have the guts to ask you questions about it. And eventually you made me feel so comfortable that you let me hold your glass eye. <laughs> I did? Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, it, you don't remember? It wasn't special for you? Uh, I felt so special. You were cleaning it. Um, <laughs> anyways, yes. So, um, you have a story that fits into our topic about fear. So I'm going to just let you take yeah. it away. Well, when when you mentioned the topic of fear and uh, and asked if I had any stories around it, um, this one came to mind very quickly. It's, it's been uh, such a huge part of my life, and um, and it was the inspiration for a show that I did, and I toured this piece of theater for uh, almost ten years or so. But the character. Um, kind of goes earlier than that. So the show is called This Is Cancer. And in it, I play the living embodiment of the disease cancer. And 
and cancer is this sort of twisted, grotesque uh, clown character uh, who believes uh, that humanity is in love with him. And uh, humanity, you know, we run for cancer. There's websites for cancer. You know, M&M's has a whole cancer campaign with pink M&M's and all that. And, and so cancer, the sort of demigod that he is, he's immortal. He's been around since the dawn of time. Uh, he decides to put on a big rock and roll show for what he believes to be his adoring public. And uh, he's real arrogant. And uh, the, at the end of the show, eventually someone comes up on stage and, and beats the tar out of him with a bottle. Yeah, you get an audience goes, member on stage. It's a great show. I've seen it. It's wonderful. <laughs> so, but the, and you know what, we've been touring that show for about 10 years, and the question I always get from it is, well, you know, what inspired you to do this piece? And so the inspiration of it is really, uh, is really the essence of, of going where the fear is, which is something that my clown teacher, uh, both of my teachers, actually, uh, Mike Kennard and John Turner, little shout out for those guys, um, they would often say, go where the fear is. This is something important. And for me, my big fear uh, growing up and, well, probably even underlying fear today is is a recurrence of cancer, as cancer was what I lost my eyesight to. So when I was 18 months old, uh, I was diagnosed with bilateral retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eyes. And they removed my right eye completely in my left eye they were they were going to remove it there were these three small tumors on my retina and my dad stepped in at that point and asked if there was some way that they could save some of my eyesight and my doctor uh knew of this kind of radical doctor out in toronto um who was experimenting with uh, lasers and uh, so they flew me to toronto and they blasted my left eye with radiation they figured what would happen is scar tissue would develop over the retina and I might have some perception of light and shadow and that'd be about it but as a beautiful miracle a little section of my left retina was left unscarred and that's how I see the world um, a cataract developed when I was four and a half years old so they removed the, the lens of my left eye Wow! and uh, so this is how I, I ended up with about 9% vision and when I was, uh, and this, as I said, this was my normal. Now I'm the youngest of four boys, and I went to an integrated school, and I understood that I had an artificial eye, my, my plastic eye. I would pop it out to impress people. And, uh, you still do that trick with me. <laughs> I do that trick to this day. Uh, <laughs> no, I think, I think the first time I did it, I uh, was in kindergarten or grade one, and I popped my eye out and lost it in the sandbox at school. Oh, my God. Uh, what? So Are you mom, <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's another story that my mother often tells about um, the neighbors coming home one day, and they see the whole Horak family out on the front lawn, uh, kind of all on their hands and knees and kicking through the grass, and the neighbor shouts over, what are you guys doing? And Dave, my oldest brother, who's probably, you know, seven at the time, says, we're looking for Bruce's eye. Oh, my God. <laughs> And the neighbor said, well, how do you know you're going how to, you, how do you know when you found it? He says, well, if it's looking back, we found it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I, anyway, kind of my whole life, it's been this, uh, this visual impairment. But I, I, as I said, I didn't really let it stop me. You know, I, uh, I had my three older brothers and they didn't let me get away with anything. But uh, they also, you know, they kind of helped, helped me keep up. You know, they taught me to play soccer and ride a bike and draw and and get theater and play music and all of that. So it was never, uh, I never really saw it as a, as a well, it was, it was an obstacle, but it, but it wasn't um, a wall, you know what I mean? I was going to find a way over this thing or around it. Right. And, um, and when I was about 13 years old, my mom told me the whole, the complete story of my diagnosis. And 
what it meant for my dad, which is something I didn't realize. Now, my dad also had an artificial eye. Oh. Uh, his parents had told him he had lost his eye when he was a child as a result of he was sick. He had a flu or something. But when I was diagnosed, the doctor asked my dad, like, well, how did you lose your eye? And my dad said, well, you know, I was sick as a baby. And they went back into his files and they discovered that he had retinoblastoma when he was a baby, that he'd had cancer. And in fact, the type of cancer, retinoblastoma, is a genetic form of cancer. So you pass it on to your children, and the chances of him passing it on to one of his kids would have been one in four, and I am the youngest of four. Oh my God, Which, so it's like you you drew the short straw. Yeah, and uh, but as my, my dad was playing at a roulette wheel, he didn't know he was playing. You know, and then that realization, he's like, oh my God, had I known this, I never would have gotten married, I never would have had kids. And he went into an uh, absolute spiral of depression. And uh, years after he passed away, I actually you know, read some of his, his journals from that time, and it was an incredibly dark time for him. He was about maybe 34 years old, getting this, getting this news. And they told him, well, your son has it in both eyes, so we have to remove both eyes. And um, so he was devastated by this. Um, went through this... Uh, major transformation where, uh, you know, facilitated by his friends and family. And, and my mom actually tells a really beautiful story about him saying, again, you know, kind of on, on his hands and knees saying, I shouldn't have gotten married. I never should have had kids. And my mom's saying, but look what you would have missed. Yeah. All he would have missed so moments. much. It like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's such a profound story that I heard at 13 and it didn't really sink into me until years later. Uh, what I took from it was I will never, have kids. I should never pass this on. And, you know, at that time, retinoblastoma, they had started to really do a lot of research in it. And, you know, they discovered that someone who has a retinoblastoma, the, the recurrence rate of cancer later in your life is extremely high in uh, soft tissue and organs. And so this specter of cancer has been with me since that that very important uh, conversation with my mother, thinking this is, this is potentially going to come back. So I've been this underlying uh, fear for my whole life of cancer coming back and cancer coming back. And you carry that fear um, with you all the time, even now. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, and I, I uh, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy specter. And uh, when I was, uh, had moved to Toronto in my um, mid-20s or so, and I think uh, I, I crashed a clown audition uh, Mike Kennard was directing a clown show and asked I was looking for people to do clown turns I had never done any clowning at all I'd, I'd gone through the smooths and done improv but I'd never really gone into the clown thing but I'd seen Mike and John do mump and smooth you know, at the fringe and just absolutely adored their work uh, I gotta work with this guy so I crashed this audition and, and did a silly turn or something and ended up getting in this show and I wasn't cast as one of the clowns there were a bunch of bouffants who are the dark twisted uh, you know they, they say the clowns are the are the sons of uh, heaven and the Buffon are the sons of hell. And I just really gravitated towards that. You can kind of get away with uh, saying some pretty pretty uh, horrible things to get a laugh. And uh, maybe it was the state I was in at the time. And I kind of gravitated towards that type of clowning. But so, the character that I developed in that show, I started doing at uh, Cabaret Nights. Yeah. This character named Foof, he was a demon who'd come up from hell. And he was trying to seduce someone to come down to hell with him. 
and I was, you know, I had sort of lumps and bumps all over my body, and I spoke in a British accent, and I was, you know, charming, and I'd bring out chocolates, and I'd bring out roses and things, and sing a lovely song on the ukulele and try to charm an audience member. <laughs> and uh, it was really fun, you know, kind of playing this this twisted demon character who's got a little heart of gold and just loves people, you know. And uh, would do five or ten minutes of this clown at various had a great time with it for a while. And one night I showed up to the uh, to the Zero Gravity Circus in Toronto, um, which is kind of, I don't know if they still do it. it was a, well, they obviously don't do it now. Uh, the monthly cabaret and uh, clowns and bouffant and people singing and dancing and taking their clothes off or whatever. So I show up to do my, my clown foof, my, my bouffant foof. And uh, the Helen Donnelly was on the bill that night, and she plays foof a clown uh, who'd been around for years and uh, they said well you gotta change your name man like poof and foo is just way too close to <laughs> You're, yeah. else. that's funny uh, clown politics man it's very clown <laughs> politics yeah she's like you're you're stepping on my thing get out of here yeah well, and, and and to be fair, Foof had only been around for, you know, a couple of months. So I, and I, I really wasn't attached to the name at all. I was much more interested in getting up on stage and trying to seduce an audience member with chocolates and roses. Uh, but I was, there was this odd moment where um, it was like a door opened and I, I had the opportunity to walk through and, it, and I, I did go through that and it changed my life. And it was a moment where I, I had to change my name and the first impulse was I should call myself Cancer. Wow. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to seduce an audience member and try to get them to take me home. I'm going to try to just be the most charming cancer ever and see if I can get this audience audience as a whole to fall in love with what they know is scary and horrible and all of that. That's... And as soon as I said it, everyone on the bill was like, you can't do that, man. They're going to beat you. They will kill you. You try to go out there as cancer. It's like, you cannot make fun of cancer because that doesn't work. And I went, well, and, and there, again, this thing in my head of like, well, I'm not going to make fun of it. I'm actually not going to make fun of cancer. I'm going to embody cancer, and I'm going to see if I can find some love here. Like, what is if I if I portray this? What sort of light can I bring into that horribly dark place? Also, if so anybody stage, if anybody yeah. can take a shot at cancer, it's the guy who lost his eye to it. You know, if anyone gets to to shit on cancer, it's you. No one gets to tell you not to do that. <laughs> Yeah, we call that the the cancer card. It's a little cachet, and it's, it's it is actually a very important point you make because um, uh, in the course of uh, where the show developed too, and, and and how it got through, it was very really important that people know that I'm a cancer survivor because uh, and people you know people have known me for a long time, and they, they they only find out you know years later that I that I lost my eye to cancer or whatever because I fake it really well. I fake being fully sighted. Um, yeah, you walk down the street and people <laughs> people wave at you and they yeah. they think you're just being an asshole by not waving back. <laughs> it's true, I can't see it. <laughs> it's true, it's so funny, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you got on stage, so it, what happened? The funny thing, well, what got on, I don't, it was such a blur, Lindsay, I, I tell you, I don't actually remember uh, what happened in, in that, the course of that turn the five or ten minutes that I was out there I do remember uh coming off stage and just my my hands were shaking and my and I I had that moment of and I, I'm sure there's performers who can relate to this uh, where it's just a complete blur like I was the adrenaline was pumping so hard uh and the stage fright that I felt 
was so intense that it was just, I'm, I've completely blocked it out. Um, I remember taking off my makeup. I remember leave, trying to leave the theater. And what is so clear to me was uh, this fellow stopped me on my way out. And uh, he said that um, he has cancer. This was 12 years ago now, maybe or 14 years ago. He said he had cancer and that um, he'd been fighting it for three years and that his family never talks about it. So the hardest thing is that nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody just shuts up around the topic or he tries to bring it up and nobody says anything and it's just quiet and quiet and silence. He says, and I got to shout at you tonight. I got to swear at you and I got to hate you out loud in a room full of people who were with me and shouting. And we, we, he just gave me a big hug and he said, you got to keep doing this, man. That's you got to awesome. keep doing this. That's amazing. And I left that night and I kind of promised myself I'm never going to do this again. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from someone who had been at that show and she was holding a, um, a fundraiser for her mother who was going in for a mastectomy and wondered if I would come and perform cancer again. And it was at that point that, uh, I, that I was going to bring someone up on stage and have them beat me with a pool noodle. And I developed a little bit more of what would eventually become the full 75-minute show. And this show for, comes out. And for anyone who doesn't know, this show, you know, it did great on the Fringe circuit. It It's like five-star Fringe darling. Everyone saw it. It was always <laughs> selling out. It's an excellent show. It's an amazing show. Thank and you. it's such... It's such a simple concept that it's, it just makes you go, oh, that guy is, it, uh, thank God someone thought of that. Thank God they <laughs> took advantage of that. It's a great, it's a great concept for a show. Well, I, I have to uh, give huge credit to Rebecca Northam for, um, for really uh, guiding and directing and spearheading and championing championing that show because uh, I, every step along the way, had to find a reason not to do it. Uh, it scared the crap out of me, Lindsay. It scared me so much in you've a way even that had people, no other performance. You've even yeah. had people give you insane reactions. In the past, you told <laughs> me someone even got violent. Yes. Uh, well, and this, this, again, speaks back to what we were talking about uh, with, with cachet and context. I did um, uh, I did a, an excerpt of the show at the Spiegel Tent in Toronto, which was a summer run, kind of body house, cabaret, I don't know how else you would describe it, but uh, this late night, adult-only kind of burlesque comedy night, and uh, the producer uh, of the show asked if I would close out the first act with 10 Minutes of Cancer. And uh, so I came out in my gold lemme speed skating outfit with the lumps and the bumps and the character and everything, told some jokes, brought somebody up, they beat me with a pool noodle. And while I was getting hit, um, this one that, while I was getting hit by this sort of drunk 20-year-old, uh, this other woman ran up on stage and just laid into me so hard. And then she's like, stopped at one point. And I was on the on the ground getting Like she punched you? Like this woman no, ran with up? with the pool noodle. Oh. She actually wailed on me with the pool noodle. Then she yells, you know why? And she pulled her wig off and she was chemo bald. And the audience went nuts. And they thought it was a plant. Wow. Just absolutely like 
Yeah, and she went back to her seat, and I go backstage at intermission, and Rebecca says, you got to go and talk to that woman. She's in absolute tears. You need to go and talk to her and just connect with her right now. So I went out into the, the audience, and I said hello to this woman. I'm still kind of half in my costume, and we're having a conversation, and this other guy comes out of the audience and leans over and punches me in the face oh and says, it was the most offensive thing I've ever seen. you got to be dragged out of here. You, I have cancer. It's not fucking funny. You can't do this. And, and he stormed out with his friends, and he ended up, I guess, writing a letter to the producer and um anyway it just kind of exploded but uh at, in that exact moment after he sort of stormed away and i was shaking the woman i had been speaking to the, the woman who was undergoing chemotherapy kind of looked at the whole interaction and said that man needed to hit you with a pool noodle and then she had her she had her photo taken with me in my full makeup and she would take the photo of herself with me dressed as cancer to her chemotherapy and radiation treatments for the next four months that's awesome. That's see. That's um, that's amazing. That's that's so polarizing. Like a character could be that impactful on people that you're getting such a such a, a diverse reactions from people. It's crazy. And it was so important. It was so important to. Um, it was funny because you know I was in tears after that and just really not sure where to go. My mother on the phone afterwards was like, "Well, you know, you do use an awful lot of foul language as that character." But the, the larger uh, the larger lesson is that um, we gotta have the we gotta have the, the, the cachet. People need to know that the person getting up there and telling stories and, and portraying this character is uh, is in fact a cancer survivor, which I am. Right. And and so happy to to be able to share that story, and um, and the realization it took me a few years to get there, but the realization that that show and that character and that piece of theater and that experience so much more about the audience and um, and what they were going through and and um, that it does come from a place of, uh, of love and connection and not, not division, which I've seen so much of that kind of theater of cruelty about dividing people up. Um, but to me, there's there's something about that show which kind of draws an audience together and, and, and uh, allows people to to uh, connect and express themselves and, and move through the fear because that was the only thing that got me through it was the audience, actually. Going through it alone was much more terrifying, but when I realized I, was, I had people with me on this journey, um, it, made it, it made it so much easier to bear. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that. That's, My pleasure. That's fascinating. My pleasure. Um, can I... I I have a question for you. It, it kind of came up today. Yeah. Um, as you know, we're we're in this whole COVID nineteen lockdown business, and yeah. um, I uh, I've been watching lots of self help type YouTube videos and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one person shared a comment they'd gotten from their YouTube subscriber base, and it was someone who was blind. And this was only a couple hours ago. I saw this, and I wanted to bring it up with you. And this person brought up how uh, they are watching the people in their life experience what they experience with their blindness. People feeling isolated from the rest of the world, basic interactions. And this person explained, when I walk down the street, because they have some vision like you, um, people, I don't get to experience the casual smiling at a person walking past you kind of thing and it's isolating and um i was just curious um how this isolation is affecting you 
having experienced a certain level of isolation due to this disability. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that is that not a good question? I I'm, no, I'm also assuming a bunch I'm of shit. I'm sorry. No, gosh, no. I'm I'm processing. Um, it's a, it is a good question. Uh, well, do you relate to that, or am I just time. assuming? Yeah, no. I, I as soon as you um, yeah, as soon as you started to unpack that a little bit, I'm like, oh yeah, I I do I do get that. Um, the I mean, gosh, we haven't seen many people. I've got to be honest. Um, Arnold and I go for a walk every day, and the, the social distancing, I, I have to say, it's, um, I find it actually quite comfortable because I, I mentioned earlier, like, I don't like large crowds and I don't like crowded spaces and having you know, people super close to me. I think it may have something to do with, I don't know, heightened hearing or, or maybe better practiced hearing and kind of spatial awareness. Like I'm just very sensitive about that. So yeah. being given a bit of room, I, I actually am finding myself breathing easier other than the sort of crushing the paranoia of like, am I going to get sick? Is someone I know going to get sick? Like all of that fear, but the actual space that I'm being given right now is, is quite lovely. And I'm very settled into that. We're very fortunate right now. We have a place. We have, you know, full walls and a roof, and we have food, and and we're connected online and all that. So I feel very, very fortunate um, with those regards. And we can still, you know, go out into the into the world if we want to take a walk, and it's not super crowded here in Stratford. So people give each other lots of space. Ah, yes, Stratford. Um, That's a good spot. To I'm be. very, yeah. I'm very, very grateful to be here. Um, I think my anxiety would be through the roof if, if I was in the city and not able to kind of get out as much. Um, yeah. Thankfully, like we go out during the day and we see you know one or two or three people, uh, and and again, it's, there's lots of space. But um, I, uh, yeah, like I don't I don't see uh, facial expressions and and uh, and body language and all that. So if and I actually hadn't even thought, oh, that maybe this was affecting. Uh, you cited people. It's funny. I, uh, it I, I thought of you when I read that, not mm-hmm. just because I was interviewing you today, but because I remember a conversation we had years ago where you told me mm-hmm. that there are certain things that most people take for granted that are little interactions between people that you have to rely on other cues to, yes. you know? Yes. Uh, and yeah. I remember finding that so interesting. And, and actually through being your friend and being very close with you over the years, I've, I've got to see into a world, uh, that I like is being up close and personal next to someone who deals with that. It, mm. it showed me so many things that I would have just continued on my life, taking everything for granted and not understanding mm. another person's perspective. Like I, I just wouldn't have understood. So huh. I don't know. I've always felt grateful to you mm. for that. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you for being on the show. I really love that you uh, decided to have a little phone call with me, and I'm so glad you're doing yeah. well. And, um, yeah. Yes. Let's keep thriving yeah. instead of just surviving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's make bumper stickers of that. Okay. Um, thanks for being on thanks, the show. Um, you My have pleasure. something that you should promote. Oh, yes. Well, uh, a number of years ago, I started painting portraits, 
portraiture, portraits of people um, as an attempt to capture the way that I see. Uh, and uh, I'm getting close to almost 600 portraits now. And I, I like uh, sittings, kind of face-to-face sittings, which obviously in this time are, has become somewhat difficult. So I've moved my practice, my portrait painting practice online. And uh, I just set up an online booking calendar on my website, brucehorak.com. And uh, it's a one-hour sitting. We do it over Skype or FaceTime. Um, it's super casual. I'm just doing head and shoulders. And uh, you get to see how I see the world a little bit. And hopefully have, uh, have a, a great one-hour chat. And uh, we'll have tea or whatever, drinking. And it'll be a good time. Yeah, I've sat for you. It's fantastic. So yeah. I highly recommend it. What's the website? Is there a website they can go to? It's Bruce, brucehorak.com. Amazing. Simple. I love it. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. Bye-bye. I'm on the phone with a man who is an actor, writer, producer, but is probably best known as an amazing world-class improviser. Uh, Most of us know him from the improvised TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? It's Colin Mockery. Hi, Colin. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, question one for you. Uh, we are self-isolating. Uh, I'm assuming you're self-isolating. Uh, did you put on pants to do this interview? I did. And uh, it's not something I did easily. <laughs> I actually, I had to think it over. Um, Yes, I'm wearing pants. That's good. That's good. So I, I'm very curious because this is such a weird time. How are you handling the whole pandemic? What has the process been like for you over the last three weeks? It's, um, in, in, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but in some ways it's been good for me. Yeah? Um, let me explain. Um the month uh, and a half leading up to this was insane. I was doing two tours, and I was filming a movie in Utah. So I'd been away for like uh, um, away from home for a month and a half, with uh, you know flying back and forth to uh, different um, things. So when we sort of uh, were told, if, you know, go home and stay there. It was really good for me because I got to heal a little bit and I got to see my family. Yeah. Now it's starting to get a little, you know, uh, I'm not quite antsy yet, but it is um, interesting times. It's interesting to see yeah, what's you know, going to happen. I was feeling the same way. I feel bad. I feel in some ways like I'm benefiting off this little break because I, mm-hmm. I had gone really hard into artistic stuff for like nine months straight with no break. And I, I kind of really needed something to stop me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is extreme. But, <laughs> yes. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I needed, I needed a pandemic, an international pandemic to stop me. Um, I know. So tell me, like, you say you're getting just a little bit antsy. Um, are you feeling... Are you a worrier? Like, are you someone who who gets germophobic or this is something that gives you panic attacks or keeps you up at night? No, I, I, I don't have any anxiousness at all. And, um, I mean, luckily our daughter is here with us, so that's great. I think if she was elsewhere, that would maybe cause a little anxiousness, but the three of us have... Um, 
and we get along so well. So it's it's really been nice to, to have this time together. And you know, I try not to get into the rabbit hole of like reading everything in the paper and everything online about because uh, it's just it can be overwhelming. So you know, I take, I try to take care of my mental health. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the reason that I decided to do this fear theme was I always wanted to tackle that subject, but um, then this happened and it seemed kind of perfect timing. Um, I'm curious. It really has worked out for you. It really it? like this is. I'm really batting a thousand in this crisis. Um, I'm curious. What are some of the uh, biggest fears in your life? As a person, like, uh, like I mean, I have my own phobias and hang-ups, but you do something quite fearless for a living. Um, what what gets in your head and, and makes you your hands sweat? Um, well, I, I, I throughout my life I've had different uh, affairs. Um, you know, I fly a lot, and after my daughter was born, I developed a real fear of flying. Really. Uh, so I kind of worked through that, but now, I, I, it took me a little while, but I finally accepted, you know what, there's nothing I can do. I just have to give in to this, I am powerless, and I just have to believe it's all going to work out. But there are times, even though I'm perfectly fine flying now, the plane will make a turn and my body will be immediately covered in sweat, even though I'm actually fine. It's like some weird, dense memory of those days where every little creak and every little um, thing was uh, was a cause for me thinking, oh, we're going to crash. I'm exactly and the I same had, way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And since then, I've had a couple of emergency landings and it's been fine. So, uh, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> I've, I've literally had people uh, calm me down next to me or offer to hold my hand during flights because I can't, I can't even contain it. My body starts shaking so much. It really freaks me out. I totally empathize with you on that. So that's like your only phobia, maybe. Um, I'm, I find as I get older, I get a little claustrophobic. Oh. Um, I had to do something recently where there's this doctor in San Francisco doing a study on what happens to the brain when it improvises. Mm. So he's been working with musicians and visual artists. So he asked me, would you uh, do this? And I thought, sure, without realizing. It was an hour and a half in an MRI. Oh, my God. With um, like a, a face shield over your uh, face and... Um, gigantic um, headsets and you're just in this <laughs> and you can't move and they would feed me information and I'd improvise while they uh, photographed my brain but that's when I thought okay I, I have slight claustrophobia I, I thought it could be worse I'm very good at talking myself down from panic yeah usually because uh, there was that fear as I was slowly going into the MRI thinking, oh, this could be, like, a horrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be good in a sensory deprivation tank. Like, people no. do that to relax. Yeah. Yeah, I have a fear of relaxing. <laughs> That's not <bad> <laughs> um, it, it, It's interesting that they, um, they studied that because 
I was thinking about this and, and fear in relation to um, improv and and I've always kind of seen improv as this great thing about control and giving up control, whether it's to the audience or the, the person beside you on stage. It's all about giving up control, as you know. So I'm curious, um, are you, you were even saying that when you're on a plane and you're nervous, you, you accept that you don't have control in the scenario. Uh, do you find that you're controlling in other areas of your life to compensate or are you very Zen? I've become very Zen. Um, I'm, one of the tours I'm doing is this hypnosis show where I'm working with people who are hypnotized and I'm improvising with them. Oh my and God. It, yeah, it was the scariest uh, improv show because we... Uh, the first time we did it was the first time we did it. And I, I would ask the hypnotist, so if I asked him to do this, will they do it? And he would go, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it depends on them. Uh, so um, there was this uh, fear, but now it is my favorite thing because these people are pure improvisers. They will do, they just accept everything I say. And I learned through the run as we were doing it I had this fear that, okay, I'm going to have to control the scene. I'm going to have to move it here. And now I just go with the flow. And the show is so much better and so much more fun. It's just, uh, it sort of took me back to what the rules of improv were. We're just, you're saying yes to everything. You're not planning anything. You're just going with the flow. Yeah. Uh, is it is it real? Like when people are hypnotized? Like, is that fake? I've always wondered if that's like a... A trick, or is that is that actually real? It's actually real. It's uh, and I talked to them afterwards, and they all say, well, I would say ninety percent of them say, oh, I was aware of the entire time of what was going on. It's just everything you said just sounded like a great idea. Right. It's really odd. Oh my god! I I honestly I had no idea if that was just like like some sort of sideshow trick or if that was actually a real state of so they remember everything when they come out of it yeah they remember everything it's just they have to um it's interesting it gets rid of all of their blocks it just opens their mind to accepting everything that comes their way wow it's, it's been fascinating and you know sometimes they go in and out of hypnosis through the show so it's I mean, it's fascinating and just odd, very odd. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, what, what drew you to improv? Um, so, I, like, what age were you when you started, and, and why was that the type of performing that you were like, yes, I love this? What, what, I, what amuses me a little bit is when people say, um, so when were you, in, like, when I started doing improv, nobody knew what it was. Right. Um, there'd only been one person kind of uh, on television, Jonathan Winters had been doing it, and then Robin Williams started. Uh, so 1980 was when I first started um, improv. I saw a demonstration of it, and I thought, my God, that just looks like so much fun, um, going up there and making up stuff with your friends. So I started to do it, and, you know, in the first uh, couple of shows, because nobody knew what it was, 
our theater was right beside McDonald's. So we would go in before the show and kind of pull people over going, come see our show. And they'd say, oh, what, what is it? And we said, well, don't quite have it yet. You have to yell things at us. <laughs> um, it, it still really doesn't make any sense. But it, it was just, um, I love the fact I was working with people. It's why I've never had any urge to do stand-up. Uh, I've uh, always had more fun being on stage with people rather than being by myself. Wow. And I just love the student of it. It's like the most uh, death-defying I can get without actually risking death. I'm never going to jump out of a plane. I'm never going to, you know, fight lions. <laughs> but going on stage with absolutely nothing, I uh, I feel really good about that. Yeah. That's how I feel about it, too. It's only, it's only once in a while. Only when I haven't done it for a while do I ever get the nerves. Does that still happen for you, or are you just like, I have done my 10,000 hours. I, it doesn't scare me at all, ever. No, yeah, it's like a, it's a muscle that gets flabby really quickly. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when all this is over because uh, it'll, it'll have been a while. And, yeah, that fear is always there. And now as I'm quite old, you know, oh, I years. wouldn't say that. Don't say that. No, no, no. You're not. You're not super old. How old are you? I'm sixty-two. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> now you're rethinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that you're uh, older, what have you learned? I have a very funny pause. <laughs> oh. Um, I, I here's the fear I have now as I'm getting older. That fear of when will I not be funny anymore? You know how I try to think of, you know, like stand-ups or anyone who are quite old and still successful and doing great things. It's not a, a long list. Right. Like there are people I loved as a kid, and then as they grew older, it was like, kind of lost touch with their audience or now they're playing to I guess the audience they had who have aged with them so there's that fear of all of a sudden oh yeah I have no idea what's going on I don't know anything about Tiger King how could I improvise <laughs> right it's that that relevance fear it's that fear that you you've lost touch somehow and that it'll sneak up on you or something yeah it'll just be people looking and laughing out of pity I don't think that's going to happen to you because you're still very much in the game. You're constantly working that muscle. I, I only really noticed that. I've gone back to reunions of like improv companies and there'll be people that improvised 20 years ago and it's like they're frozen in time. It's very interesting that improv can have a different vibe from a different time and and and... You see it then, but I couldn't imagine that happening to you. You're working all the time. Uh, all right. I'm going to write this down, and <laughs> if I suddenly become irrelevant, I'm calling you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I don't think you should call me if anything goes wrong. <laughs> I have no... no I have I'm no going to call you, and <laughs> you're going to have to fix this. <laughs> oh, shit. What have I done? Um... Uh, okay, I'm going to leave it on one last question for you. Um, what advice would you give to uh, new improvisers and performers who struggle with uh, fear on stage and getting stuck in their head? I just want to say don't. 
um, <laughs> which is we you know, it's so easy to say, and it's it took me the longest time. Most of my pre-show workout, which is basically having a coffee and you know maybe eating a donut, um, is just getting to a point where I am just relaxed and I'm ready just to go on stage with whoever I'm going on stage with and trust they're going to do their part, I'm going to do my part. So that is, uh, find a way to do that, whether it's through meditation or just distracting yourself. And of course, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Right, um, yeah. You know, it, it, improv really is a muscle that you have to keep moving. And you, there's never a point, there's never a point before a show, as I'm walking on stage going, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake, this is going to be so easy, they're just going to love me. Mm-hmm. never happens. You'll always start from square one again, and you just have to find the joy in doing that. Right. Yeah. That's good, that's good, solid advice. Hey, so uh, thank you for being on the podcast. I hope uh, your isolation goes well, and I hope you don't get stir-crazy or stressed out. Thank you, and I hope you have no other projects that are dependent on the world falling apart. <laughs> thank you. That's that's very sweet of you to say. Um, thank you for being on my show. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Truth Be Told, the podcast. The episode all about fear. Guys, I feel like I face some fears in making this episode. I was genuinely nervous during some of the interviews. Maybe you could hear it in my voice. I was a little bit stiff. I think I was a little bit starstruck, to be honest. I was really nervous. But I got through it, and I'm really, really glad that I got such amazing guests on this episode. I hope this episode inspires you to face your fears in your life right now. I'm sure you have many fears bubbling up at the moment, because we are living in some strange, strange, strange times. And on that note, I just want to remind you that you're doing better than you think you are. Please, please continue to social distance. Wash your hands. Take care of the loved ones around you via telephone or FaceTime. Help flatten the curve. Take care of yourself. And you can do that just by being kind to yourself. You deserve kindness and understanding from yourself at this time. You do not need to be your best self right now. You don't need to be your most productive self right now. It's okay to just breathe and take it one day at a time. Okay? So just take it one podcast at a time if you need to. That's what I'm doing. I also want to give a quick shout out to the lovely people who have reached out to me over Instagram. There's been some strangers who've sent me a direct message to tell me their thoughts on Truth Be Told, and I live for it, guys. It really brightens my day. It makes me feel like there's a reason I'm creating this show. 
because often it can feel like I'm just talking into a microphone and there's no one on the other end. So I love getting your feedback. And this is just a reminder that there is a Q&A session in an upcoming episode of the show. So please, if you have any questions, send them to me and I might answer the question on the show. Yeah. You can ask me about a guest that was on the show in the past, how the show's made, maybe a personal question about me. I'm an open book. Send me your questions. My handle is at Mullo. That's L-I-N-D-S-O-M-U-L-L-O. And you can find me on Instagram. Okay, a couple more thank yous. Time, uh, time to thank my guests. I had some amazing guests on the show, and I feel so lucky that they agreed to be on the show. So thank you to Daniel Stern, Bruce Horak, and Colin Mockery. You guys were awesome. Time to thank all the usual suspects. Thank you to Matthew Reed. He made the music for the podcast. Thank you to Catherine Fogler. She did the podcast photography. Thank you to Kurt Furla, who did the graphic design on that podcast photography. Thank you to the boys at the Sonar Network, Michael Mangiardi and Cody Crane. They produced this podcast, and I'm very, very thankful for them. Thank you also to Trevor Pullman. He's the editor of Truth Be Told. All right, you guys. Take care of yourselves. And uh, I hope to be broadcasting again to you soon. Stay healthy. Stay happy. Wear pants. If you feel like it. Bye-bye. has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! It would be hard to dispute that Canada is a country built on immigration. Mad as Hell Podcast, an investigative podcast by me, Priscilla Tang, joined by my co-host, Baden Earl. And together, we're an unlikely duo who uncover true stories of families seemingly slipping through the cracks of Canadian immigration. Vaden Earl tells all from personal experience as a Canadian who's lived in exile with his adoptive daughter in Dominican Republic for 10 years. And I, Priscilla Tang, talk to you from Toronto as a first-generation Canadian of immigrant parents and a public policy graduate investigating news stories in Toronto. You can listen to Mad as Hell podcasts on any platform where you already get your podcasts, or you can find us at thesonarnetwork.com.